It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Since November, we've been talking to the newly elected members of Congress, checking in with them before they're sworn in on January 3rd. This week, I sat down with... Cliff Bentz. I'm the congressman-elect from Oregon Congressional District 2. Bentz is a Republican, and like his predecessor, Congressman Greg Walden, he'll be the only Republican serving in Oregon's delegation. I started out by asking him to describe his district. Well, Oregon 2 is one of the largest congressional districts in the United States. There's much debate about exactly where it fits on the list, but I think it's number seven. It's little, just a fraction less than 70,000 square miles. So it's, uh, as my predecessor, Congressman Walden, likes to say, bigger than any state east of the Mississippi. And then he has many other means of trying to show how, how large the district is. But it takes about seven, eight hours to drive across it. Mm. It's... Um, it's a, it's a beautiful space, a very, very uh, varied in how its um, ge- geography uh, exists. And it's, it's, a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful place if you like lots of open space, because uh, we have a lot of it. Wonderful people in it, ranchers, farmers. We have a really, really wide variety of folks. We have the Columbia River on the north side. We have California on the, on the south. We have Nevada, Idaho toward the east. It's a uh, very, very different when it comes to the people that live within it, which which I like. You know, you're coming into a Washington D.C. where Republicans are in the minority, though by a smaller margin than many had expected. What can you tell them, and and what did you learn about being in the minority party, um, where? You know, in, in your case, you had a governor that was a Democrat come to Washington. It's the, the president who's the, the Democrat. Um, what did you learn about working with the majority party, bipartisanship? What worked? What didn't work? Should we throw our hands up and say it's never going to work? You can't you can't cross party lines these these days or or what? I hope it's not the the the, the latter. I, I would I would say that what I learned is that you 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 have to rely if you're in the minority a lot on on the majority on what what they're going to allow you to do. I mean it's kind of up to them. And I learned uh, in the in the last couple of years I was in the Oregon State Senate that the, the politics of Portland, Oregon had made it extraordinarily difficult for my Democrat friends in the Senate to even allow me as a as a Republican to be at the at the table. I was the co-chair of the carbon committee, the so-called carbon committee, and I was frozen out of, of the discussions for five months on a very, very serious cap and trade bill, one of the one of the more aggressive approaches to managing carbon that, that I've seen. And I was just not allowed I wasn't allowed in the room. And and that was because my Democrat friends told me later uh, the folks that put them in office back in Portland didn't want a Republican in the room, and so they didn't allow didn't allow me in, and, and ultimately that re, that meant that we we actually we we Republican senators walked out to to deny the Democrats a quorum and thus prevented the cap and trade bill from passing. But I will share with you, and I've told it to everybody that that's not the right way to do business. The, the right way to do business is try to sit down and work these things out. But if you're not at the table, it's pretty tough to do. But uh, the thing I learned when I was in Salem is that if if I worked really hard to know more about the issues than anybody else at the table, generally that had a value. And generally people wanted to hear what you had to say. And, and if they all viewed the problems as a common problem as opposed to just 
somebody's problem, one side or the others. Uh, then they wanted good thinking and, and hard work. And so uh, I'm going to take that thought to, to Washington, D.C. And, and hope that, hope that working hard and showing up and thinking and being civil will, will, uh, will work. Um, I think a lot of people are hoping for the same thing. And, and it's, it's clear that, you know, that's something that President-elect Biden is also counting on and is something that he campaigned on. Um, but he also campaigned on a, a pretty aggressive climate um, agenda, including, you know, zero net emissions by 2050. I'm wondering, as we think about the issues of climate going forward, the kinds of things you think you could support or work with Democrats or work with an administration getting actually accomplished? Like, where are the where are the places Democrats, Republicans could come together on this? There are many things in the climate space that work for large parts of my district that looks suspiciously like adaptation. So irrigation, for example, is a means of adapting to a dry climate. And we irrigate an awful lot of CD2. And so if you use words like adaptation and sequestration and innovation, those words resonate with people on both sides of the aisle. And if you can show people that you can save them money uh, by using uh, electric cars, for example, rather than paying for, for fuel, they'll knock you down to get to an electric car. And uh, there's there's many, and th this is proven by, if you go to a hardware store now, how many people are buying electric drills that have a cord on them? No, they'll be buying drills that have a battery because they're so much more convenient. So you need to find those, and there are a lot of them as people get um, you know, smarter about all these things and innovation happens uh, that you can you can find common ground and you can move forward on one side of the aisle. You'll be saying, hey, this is because it's saving you money on the other side of the aisle. People will be saying, hey, it's reducing carbon. And those are the kind of opportunities that exist all over the place. What, what ends up happening, it, people get caught up in the politics of it. And uh, that's too bad because that makes it very, very difficult. Well, and your district, um, unfortunately, suffered incredible devastation with with wildfires this year um talk about how the issue of climate change um has impacted those you know the the kinds of um fires that you saw and whether that's the kind of thing that can also bring democrats and republicans together that you may be a democrat sitting in portland oregon but you see these wildfires going on in the districts you live in and say, well, gosh, there has to be a way we can together make sure stuff like this doesn't happen anymore. One of the problems in talking about forests, most people, myself included, have a very difficult time understanding the sheer scale of the problem. Because probably if you look at Northern California, Oregon, Washington, you have about 100 million acres of forest. And this year, 1 million of those acres in Oregon burned up, I think 3 million down in California. And uh, that means we still have 96% of the forest to burn. And we don't want it to burn. The, the, but the sheer size of the problem is extremely hard for people to understand. Mm -hmm. The number that was thrown about and how we would try to address 
this issue just on Oregon was $44 billion. Well, we're, we don't have $44 billion. It's, and the other thing that generally is overlooked is how long this problem is going to take to fix. If we stopped generating carbon tomorrow, it would be 40 years before things perceptibly changed. And so what we have to do now is address the immediate problem. And then it, it, people can say, well, it's drier because of climate change. Let's assume it. Uh, if it's going to take 40 years to address the issue, and that assumed we stop generating carbon tomorrow, uh, this is a long-term problem that needs immediate attention and long-term attention. Mm. And so uh, two, two approaches. And the first one is to do a, you know, a risk analysis to let people know what, what they're facing and, and how, how likely it is that their house is going to burn up. We lost 2,700 homes down in Medford, and we lost uh, six 700 homes just outside of Salem to fire. Uh, the the one down in Medford was not so much forest involved. Uh, it was it was a different issue, but still, those those kinds of risks are up and down the West Coast, and and we need to let people know what they need to do to save themselves in the short run. In the long run, that's that's a great big huge issue, and it needs so much work. Um, then and, and it's not just one solution. It's going to be dozens dozens of solutions to try to address this issue. It's huge. One thing I want to point out why, why you asked this question, a lot of people don't understand that the additional CO2 in the air is driving much more aggressive growth of the forest. 12, 13, 14% more growth than used to be the case. Just because there's so much more CO2 in the air that the trees are busy, you know, sequestering. And so this, this makes the problem even more difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. You raise a really good point, which is there is a short term and the long term. And you've been in politics for a little while now, and you're coming to Washington. How challenging is it to get political figures to think outside of just the immediate short term? Well, it's hard. Um, and, and social media has made it even more difficult. When you come at it from the stand, my standpoint, having spent so many years in this space, you realize that that a short-term solution is really defrauding the people you're representing. It's really not you're not doing your job. And so it's it's um, that short-term gain is just not worth it. And somehow you've you've got to tell people, hey, uh, this is a long-term play, and we're all going to have to work together over time, and eventually we'll get this problem solved. But boy, the, 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 our whole society seems to be. Uh, you know, they want immediate gratification. And, and this, this, this COVID situation is a great example. People being forced to actually wait. It's a real lesson. How, how has COVID impacted you and, and your constituents? I mean, obviously, we know the, the toll that it's taking nationally. But if, if you are talking to, to folks in your community, um, specifically, how are they processing this moment? Well, it's a huge challenge. In fact, the local restaurants in my little town asked me yesterday if I would please come to a meeting with them Sunday at two in the afternoon up in a little coffee shop. Uh, we used to go there every every morning, and we don't now because you don't get to go in. And and this is true across the uh, entire landscape of, of, of restaurants in, in Oregon. And they're going broke, and the people are, their lives are being destroyed. And it's not it's not just that space. It's all kinds of spaces like that. And these people are desperate. And they're, and they're saying, hey, we know, we, we know you're not in the state government anymore, but 
you know all of us. Would you please come down and, and give us some hope? And it's really, really challenging. It's this is really bad. And and um, and of course we want the work that they're doing in Congress now to try to help some of these people bridge over the next you know next year because I think it's going to take that to get back to where we all want to be. Uh, but uh, that people. Some people are doing really well in this situation, and a whole bunch are doing really – it's really bad. And so how how we try to help is, is a real question. And, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to say when I go down there on Sunday other than uh, I'll do my best to to, to help. Congressman-elect Mance, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I wish you the best of luck. Please stay safe out there. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, right. and, of course, you also. Cliff Pence is the Republican congressman-elect for Oregon's 2nd Congressional District. To hear an extended version of this conversation or any of our freshman conversations, check out the podcast or go to politicswithamywalter.org slash freshman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.